This week, we gambled away our money, shoplifted some CDs, and had a dance party instead of doing our jobs. Because this week, we finally watched Empire Records. Welcome back to How Did You Miss This, a show where we take a look at movies some of us have missed the first time around. I'm Evan Toller-Hickey. With me, as always, Michael Hansen and Krista Shane. And this week, I forced my compatriots to watch Empire Records. Yay! Yay! I don't think that they are nearly as excited as I am about this one. So... None, none of us said yay in unison with you, so you know, that's a preview right there. Let's go back to a time long ago, a simpler time, 1995. This movie comes out. I don't believe that I saw it in theaters because I don't think anybody saw it in theaters, but certainly did catch it on uh, the DVDs. Chris, Michael? How is it that you miss this beloved cult classic? I swear to God, I'd never heard about this um, until you mentioned it. I don't think I ever paid attention. And uh, it uh, it was very easy for me to miss because, you know, I it was not a thing that I ever knew about. So, yeah, thank you for bringing it up. And we'll talk a lot about how much I appreciate you bringing it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, 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 similar to you, missed it because nobody saw this in theaters. Uh, and uh, in the intervening couple of decades, this is one of those movies that um, came up in the same conversation with friends where other movies from the 90s that I don't like would be talked about with great admiration and love. Uh, so it's one that I've always kind of intentionally avoided because a lot of the movies I didn't like that other people liked were like best friends with this movie. So I was like, I don't need to hang out with any of these because I know some of these people already and I'm, I'm good. Uh, and so I've been kind of, um, I've been... Also, I don't want to say dreading. I've been anxious oh, no. oh, about no. doing you, this. You have been you have been dreading. Every time I've brought this movie up, you've gone, oh, Christ, oh. I can't believe that I have to watch this. Yeah. Oh, God, I'm dreading watching this. I think you it's, literally it's use like It's dreading. like cold plunge. It's like a cold plunge where you're like, this is just possibly just going to be really uncomfortable, but I just got to get into it. All right. Now, now for the listener... This is important to to point out that we made a pact early on to say, like, we will approach all of these movies with a positive attitude. So I didn't actually have that. I didn't have a negative thing going into it. When I started watching it, I had a bit of a negative reaction. But this whole thing around trying to focus on the positive has been very helpful. And I think that that's what we're going to talk about uh, today to kind of say, you know, um, what did we actually get out of it? But why is this movie important and why would someone consider watching it now? I didn't have that preconceived notion. I had an immediate negative reaction and I look forward to talking about how I was able to overcome that. So, you know, this, this, this I'm will be very fun. proud of both of you. <laughs> True. <laughs> this is, this is not a movie like Evan within Bruges that I nearly watched 16 times and then finally got over the line. This is no, a movie I, that I tried to avoid 18 times. Uh, okay, <laughs> and, and, and this movie, uh, when we talk about, you know, where, where I tried to watch in Bruges, like 16 times and never got to it. Uh, I have probably seen empire records more than any other movie. I, 
love this movie so much. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. And part of part of it is just understanding how. Yeah. So before before we get too into, uh, I mean, although we've already kind of spoiled, I think, our reaction. But let, let's talk a little bit about how the movie came to be and how it got made. Uh, and then we can talk about uh, what our reaction was after seeing it, because I, I went into it with a sense of dread. But what was my actual interpretation of it once I got a chance to see it? So let's let's talk, though, about the making of this thing, because it's kind of a fascinating tale in and of itself. It really is. So, you know, this movie is uh, largely based on uh, Carol Heikkinen, the the screenwriter of it, um, her experience working in tower record shops uh, as she was, uh, you know, coming up. And it gets picked up by Regency, Pictures. Yeah, it was Regency Pictures, and and this this kind of got made in um, the years after the Bodyguard. Uh, so uh, Warner Brothers had put the Bodyguard out. Um, it had made uh, a boatload of money in theaters, but what I think what Warner Brothers had realized was uh, the soundtrack to the Bodyguard, the Whitney Houston Kevin Costner movie. Uh, you know, I'll, maybe I'll try to sing a few of the songs. Uh, Please do right now. Um, so that that soundtrack uh, sold something like 40 or 50 million copies. So they basically made almost as much off of the soundtrack for that movie uh, as they did off the movie itself. And so in the wake of that, Warner Brothers and other companies started hunting uh, for uh, new movies where they could bang out some some successful soundtracks, realizing that there was now a lot of money to be made on the side. And that's where Warner Brothers and, and winds up kind of shopping this out. Regency winds up picking up um, the, the script for this uh, and, and kind of running with it uh, in the aftermath of, of the success of The Bodyguard. So Well, and, and that's really interesting, too, because this also occupies this sort of strange space in the uh, movie landscape where we're sort of right before teen comedies kind of got really big again. Um, you know, so they, they had been very big with all of the John Hughes kind of kind of things. And then they kind of petered off and they got really big again in the late 90s where you have uh, like American Pie and uh, 10 Things I Hate About You and, and things like that. And this is kind of in a little bit of a of a trough. And it also is out after, you know, the, the sort of like teen and early 20 something movies at that time are like dazed and confused and um, uh, reality bites. So. This movie comes at a, an odd time for what it is sort of slated to be. And in fact, um, you know, Regency is, is about to do this movie. Then uh, they're pitched the, the film that would be Clueless. And they pass on Clueless because they don't want to be known as like the teen movie uh movie making company, which is bananas, but this is how executives think. Yeah. And, and I think that partly ties back into to some of the, the impetus for green lighting. This movie was the, the soundtracking, right? The music and trying mm -hmm. to, to make some of those successes. So once they already kind of had this thing queued up where they were planning, uh, you know, a soundtrack and, and this heavy, heavily music focused movie, clueless maybe doesn't line up 
as well against that. It's just some other teen movie and they're off to the races. So I think one of the, one of the fascinating things about this movie too is, um, this movie pulled in a lot of actors who became real actors and this oh, was yeah. kind of their first, their first real gig. Right. So it's not like this is a, a, a nothing throwaway kind of thing with just music. Like there's a lot of people who were cast in this movie, um, you know, on down the line who went on to have either very successful or at least, you know, successful acting careers too. So this is, um, you know, pulling in folks like, uh, Liv Tyler, um, and, um, Renee Zellweger and some other folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and it's directed by Alan Moyle and, uh, you know, the, the studio picks him because he had already done pump up the volume. So again, sort of this odd time in, in teen movies, because pump up the volume would have been one of those like big teen movies and also gets us back to, to Chris's point about music. And Alan Moyle, uh, is, uh, evidently very meticulous about the music that he uses in his movies. And he's a big music fan. So he tends to go for quite, um, deep cuts on the music as well. So when this movie comes out in 1995, I think it lasted in the box office for like a hot 13 seconds or something like that. It it made 300,000 bucks or so at the box office before the studio yanked it, I think out of just sheer embarrassment and not wanting to commit any more resources to this thing. And I think as we go forward, this is going to be a tale of studio meddling and what it can do uh, to the success of a movie and to the movie itself. But we'll get into that as we go. Yeah. And I I think to to clarify that point as well, um, the studio decided not to give it wide release kind of or at the last minute. They only opened it in 87 theaters and gave it zero promotion. So think about like the number of theaters, even in Toronto. And it's like, it opened on like 87 screens. And so like, that's not even filling the screens in the city. So, you know, it's, it's no real surprise that, it only made $300,000, a budget of $10 million. So, I mean, it did not do well by any metric. And yet, and yet, this movie, somehow, after making it to home video, like, thrives. Yeah, and I, and I think that's one of the, the fascinating things that we'll have to talk about in here is the the cult hit status of this thing. Because, I mean, I think part of the reason this movie gets, you know, m- murdered so quickly uh, is the fact that the reviews for this are terrible. Like, oh, the it is, reviews are you, awful. It is universally detested. And like, if you look on Rotten Tomatoes, the, the um, you know, critic score is 31%, but the fan score is significantly higher. It's like uh, 83, I think, uh, when I looked it up. Um, so like you're saying, I mean, like there's this big divide between people who have watched it and people who have reviewed it. Obviously part of the reason it gets killed, but I think it's one of the few movies that it becomes a cult classic where you have this massive divide. There's lots of other movies that aren't successful in theaters, Shawshank Redemption, Fight Club, Rocky Horror Picture Show, but the reviews aren't nearly as bad (laughs) as they are on this. So now that we've seen it, uh, what do we think of it? And Michael, maybe let's start with you. Like what, what are your thoughts after having seen it? So the reason I mentioned this thing around having a positive outlook is like, I, I did not enjoy it, but I, there are a bunch of things that I really see that if I'd seen this in my formative years, there's so many things that I recognized from moving here, uh, 
to Toronto in, in 95. There's so many things that kind of like resonated from that perspective. Watching it now for the first time, uh, I have a whole different experience, but, but there's a lot of other things going on there that I think it'll be really, really interesting to, to discuss. Evan, how, how about yourself? This is rewatch number 40 or something. I don't know for you pretty deep in there. It, it never gets old. I, 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 again, I love this movie. The, this, this movie is, uh, just, it, it, this is, this is my stuffy. The, the, you know, I can just, I can just hold on to this movie and, and, and hold it close. I, I, I will say for me that, um, this movie inspired the, maybe writing a, a a sequel to the ring where it's like, I watched a movie, didn't understand what was contained in it over the next week. I like investigated this thing. And then it gradually led me down this path of madness because I was so desperately trying to understand why this movie is so beloved. And I think part of the, the thing for me is seeing that there are a lot of seeds in this movie of a movie that I think could have been, really 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 good or at least good maybe not really good um but like a good let's go with really 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 good sure uh a movie that i think that i would have found enjoyable um but it's like i found just went in all the wrong directions so there's like some stuff there at its heart where i'm like okay i could see something and i think that's what kind of drove me down this path of madness so i wound up watching three versions of this movie trying to be like, well, maybe this version makes more sense. Maybe this version has those other bits and pieces. And I can say, having watched all three, I didn't like them. Um, but I think that's kind of the fascinating thing for me is kind of seeing the the parts of it where maybe there was something there. But I think maybe this is a good time to take a break uh, and come back on the other side. And maybe in the meantime, while we take the break, the three of us can uh, flesh out my uh, Ring 2 uh, sequel hypothesis. We'll be right back. And we're back. And as always, we're going to get into details about this movie um, besides just our love and or dislike of it. Uh, So if you don't want the movie spoiled for you, that's going to be happening starting basically right now. So before we get into it, I'll give you a quick recap of what this movie is about. So um, Empire Records is a movie that follows like the day in the life of uh, a record store and the misfit employees who run it. Uh, And in that day, they find out that their store is going to be sold to a big old music store chain and what happens as a result. So I think the starting point for our conversation here kind of has to be about um, the story, the writing, the characters. I I, I will say for me, um, I didn't really get a through line plot when you, you know, it sets you up as this store is going to be sold and nobody's happy about it. And then it disappeared after the first 10 minutes and came back in the last 10 minutes. Uh, Like, I think this is one of those key things that I might've missed because I thought the setup was going to be a story about saving the record store. And it didn't seem to be that. Am I wrong? I think that, that this is less of a story and more of a vibe, man. That you know, that's what Empire Records is about. It sets up that it, you know, it sets up the stakes very quickly. Like there is missing money and 
there. So let's let's actually let's walk this this through line through. So Lucas closes the store one night, finds out that the store is going to get sold to Music Town. He takes the money from that day, goes to Atlantic City, gambles it, hoping to make enough money so that their boss, Joe, can buy the store. He loses all the money, can't face his boss about it. And then the story becomes about the missing money. What are we going to Joe being like, what am I going to do? I've got to find the money. We're completely screwed now. The manager, the owner comes in, Joe becomes complicit in the scheme because he packs just as much of paper in the, in the cares uh, about the people more than the money in the store about the people more than a money. Yep. Now it looks like things are, are going to go really bad for everybody, but at least they're in this together. Then once everybody realizes that the, you know, that this is the end of the road, uh, the, the lovable stoner Mark comes up with one last brilliant idea uh, that they're going to have a giant fundraiser to try to save the empire. We get a big party scene at the end where uh, people come from all over because music is what connects us. It's like the force. And Joe gets enough money to... By Mitchell, the owner, out. Except what you just said, none of that comes across uh, when you <laughs> yeah, watch it. To I'm me. right there with you. Because these are technically <laughs> things that, that the, have the hard plot on that. There's yeah, it's just story the, as well. And there's no, goofiness, no, no, no. There's music, and there's a fake funeral. Somebody wants to kill themselves. But there are a whole bunch of things that happen. And the way that you put it together, like, sure, that's one way to interpret it. But that does not come through when you watch it the one time. Maybe after the 46 times. Maybe after you've read it. But it's like, that's not really how it comes through. Because exactly to Chris's point, I found that, okay, so sure, there's money missing. But no one seems to be upset about it. No one seems to be really care about it. No one seems like the whole thing around the the... Uh, sale agreement doesn't really kind of come to the top of the thing and the rex manning thing seems to be like not related and uh, what you mentioned about the stoner having this great idea like that that's not even really that's more like just oh i have an uh, idea i'm gonna go and do a thing so uh it is that's not to say that i don't love what they're doing because i totally see the whole notion of all these random people being joined together by this common love of music and doing something differently but it does feel a little bit like you know after the fact construction of of what actually happened and how well written it is because my feeling of it was not what you just said uh it's something i looked for later and i can appreciate it but i, I don't think that yeah that's I, will, I will say i i found there was too many too many characters and subplots going on um all at the same time i felt like none of them got any um like 
genuine proper attention uh some of them thrown in at weird times some of them you know like oh you find out in like the last 20 minutes that renee zellweger wants to be a singer which seems like just a setup because she's singing at the end rather than a an actual character arc that she's had throughout the thing but like i i will say that i think i i would tie this back a little bit to um you know, we talked about studio meddling up the mm-hmm. top. And so um, what I was was reading was that this was actually originally supposed to take place over the span of two days rather than yeah. basically one day. Um, so I can understand how some of these get chopped down. Apparently, the studio chopped the original movie down uh, by about 17 or 20 minutes, something like that, and replaced chunks of it. And also they chopped it down from being an R-rated movie down to a PG-13 movie. So um, there's all these weird bits and pieces where clearly the kids are supposed to be doing drugs. Uh, but oh, they are definitely doing drugs. Right. But that's where the studio got it down from. Uh, oh, I forget his name. The guy, the guy who's the stoner drug dealer. Uh, thank you. Um, who walks in. He's like, hey, I made my brownies. And you know what that means? Lots of, and then it like cuts to behind his head and it's like, lots of sugar. And you're like, what? Like, okay. Uh, that's weird. But like, that, so I think that that resequencing of the movie, editing out bits and pieces of it, trying to tone pieces of it down, um, definitely is one of those things which doesn't do it any service in terms of trying to like create that through line arc for me and that's where i was like surely there must be a different version that has this like more more logical nope nope there isn't there isn't that version none of the versions i'm I'm fascinated by these versions that you found uh and you've told me some of the things that happened in one of the versions that you found and it's it's it makes it such a different movie it's crazy yeah all all three of them are different movies this is also where i don't i don't want to be I don't want to be too down on this because I really get like, you know, anyone listening, if, if you were in Toronto, but you would have had your own versions of this. We had a Sam the Record Man uh, store uh, on Young Street where it was like all about you go in there. That was a ritual. You go in and you look for things and you talk to people, it attracted certain uh, types of people. And, and it was like a community thing. And what they capture in this movie around the, the people it, it has that feel to it. It's just, it's unfortunate that there's such stereotypes. Like they're, they're such caricatures in a way, like the guy coming in with the guitar slung over his, you know, like, and, and then he actually walks around like that. And like everyone is so extreme in whatever they do, but what it captures is so much of that, that at that time was so relevant. So like that, I think is incredibly uh, powerful and, and I can totally see why that would have, you know, talked to you at that point. Yeah, I'll say, I, I think that, that the stereotypes here are kind of done on purpose and it, with a little bit of tongue in cheek. To me, this is sort of, um, like this is a better breakfast club for me that's my 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 hot take is that this is the breakfast club um uh, and and there there you have all of the the 80s characters in that movie the jock and the nerd and the alley sheedy girl like you know they <laughs> they uh yeah that's that movie this movie is kind of peak 90s yeah and it's got all of the uh 
stereotypical uh, hetero white uh, characters that you would find in uh, in a a a nineties flick, you know. But what's so interesting about that is like any movie that depends on that as a as a trope now, like it, if you watch Twenty One Jump Street, like they really play with that. They go back to high school, and it's the whole thing. Like they play up. Oh, you know, to fit in high school, you have to dot dot dot. And then it turns out that high school now is so different. Everything's reversed. Double strapping your backpack and the nerds and this. That if you look at the people growing up now, these stereotypes don't exist. Like in the 90s, it was extreme. Someone shaved their head. Oh, they shaved their head. Oh, this is so crazy. Now everyone is something in a way that these don't work anymore. So I'm really, really interested in like thinking, what would it be like for someone growing up and watching this now versus having watched it? And it was like a seminal, huge thing for you at the right point in your life when you watched it. Well, you've got uh, the perfect test subject, Michael, because... You have a son who uh, would be right now about the same age uh, that I was when I saw this. So I think is that this maybe be ethical. Hold on, I, what are we doing? I, Test subject with his kid. I think that maybe you should ask Marcus to watch this, and uh, then at a, a future episode, we'll we'll come back to. To that and get his sense of it because I'm I'm genuinely curious as well because I don't I, I it's one of those hard things where uh, you know we we look back at this and it really is kind of a a period piece it is a time capsule because it is so freaking nineties yeah super nineties uh, super nineties and I'll I'll just say like I. I mean, I think I was maybe to Michael's point, if I had seen this as a teenager, I was a teenager in the 90s when this came out. I worked in a record store when this came out. Like, I I think in the Venn diagram overlap of all these things, I was probably perfectly positioned to be like, this is a movie that I should watch and like. And I, I think that's the, the fascinating part. So, I mean, maybe we do uh, uh, we've gather up a whole group of teenagers and uh, get them to watch this and see, <laughs> see what the outcome of that experiment is. But there we go. Viewing party uh, at, uh, at, at the Hansons. Hey kids, come over to my house and watch a movie from the nineties. What could go no, wrong? You just get, you get, you get Marcus to bring his friends, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so it get creepy. Uh, okay. So on that note, let's talk about, performances because um again you know there's a number of folks who went on to you know acting careers that ranged from uh pretty good to very successful um anthony lapaglia um uh, rum Renee zellweger Liv Tyler. like there's a bunch of people uh a lot of people who when you watch this movie you're like oh hey oh hey hey look at that way they're in that uh there was a couple of um folks in this movie who were near misses so toby mcguire uh was part of the original cast and dropped mm-hmm. out um possibly for substance abuse issues. Angelina Jolie was nearly in this movie as Deb. There's a number of people who were near misses, but like this was Renee Zellweger's first real movie, Liv Tyler's first real movie. A number of these folks come out of this um, and kind of go on. So 
um, I will say like, despite the, the, the story feeling a little jagged, uh, or kind of disconnected for me at points, there's a number of people in this movie who I think are, uh, like great, delightful. Um, I can definitely see why this is a, a launch pad for them. So like who for you stands out in this movie and this cast? Well, anybody except AJ, um, who, you know, unfortunately is, uh, pretty weak. Um, yeah, but you know, there to me, uh, Robin Tunney is, is great. Uh, Renu Zellinger has some really nice moments. Um, you know, there, and there are some, there's some fun stuff from characters all across, but, um, yeah. And, and of course, Maxwell Caulfield as, uh, as Rex Manning, just a giant douchebag. I think that's probably the thing to say. Like it's you, you either have to, you either have to focus on the individual scenes and what they do well, or the consistent performance. So for instance, if you look at what, what you just mentioned, like the, the Rex Manning character is probably the most consistent and you could say, well, that's amazing. Almost everyone else are incredibly inconsistent and it'd be very easy to poke fun of them. But then they each get some moment where you're like, Oh, that Whoa, was actually all right. Actually yeah, really I agree. Good. That was a really meaningful um, performance. So it's hard to kind of call uh, a, a character a person out, but more to say that scene actually did a lot to redeem this experience. Now, here's a... Uh, one of those interesting things we talked about when we talked about Stand By Me, we we talked about how Rob Reiner cast the kids um, that he felt really represented uh, the parts properly mm-hmm. and then did a couple of weeks of uh, like theater kind of uh, camp with them, basically getting them comfortable with each other. Um, Alan Moyle, it seems, did kind of the same thing here uh you know the the when the cast was put together and it was definitely cast as an ensemble piece as chris mentioned like angelina jolie was in your mess from what i uh kind of read in my research on that um she was such a freaking force of nature in the auditions that they genuinely worried that she would just destroy everyone else on screen yeah, and that they needed to, you know, balance the levels and, and Robin Tooney fit kind of perfectly in that role. And so, you know, they, they get cast and then, uh, you know, they, they go off to, to shoot the movie and, and everyone is staying kind of on a compound all together and like hanging out and, uh, doing some drugs, having dinners and uh, getting up to shenanigans. And it feels like that kind of uh, camaraderie actually does it. It comes across yeah, to I me so. like there yep. is there is that chemistry there. They feel kind of like, OK, this is a group of people who actually do like work together and haven't just kind of been parachuted in, um, you know, to, to I, shoot this film. I sort of agree and disagree so there are a lot of times so for instance the whole thing around people show up uh, and they arrive at work and they're flipping each other off or showing up in this and that like that felt completely unrealistic but one of my favorite exchanges in the entire movie happens right at the end post credits i think and that's when uh, there's this discussion um 
about Henry Rollins <laughs> yeah, yeah. and uh, Primus and Pixies. That probably is the one that felt the, felt the most like, okay, yeah, like this is this is believable. So much of the other stuff kind of was, you know, I don't know, artificial, was written in a way, but that felt like, okay, this, I believe, in terms of people uh, working like this. Uh, yeah, together. I, 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 I feel kind of the same way. I feel like there's a lot of points where you get that certain of the actors especially got on very well. They carry off some of that chemistry um, on, on the screen. Um, like I, I felt like Liv Tyler and Renee Zellweger were generally like pretty good. They got along well. Mm-hmm. They, they, they seem to have some um, like chemistry on screen together as, as friends, which I, I was like fully into. I believed that I found some of the characters for me. Um, and I, I get, this is half, half direction. Uh, but like breaking the fourth wall for me was one of those things that just made me cringe every time somebody was doing that. So when, uh, Lucas or Mark were breaking the fourth wall and speaking directly into the camera, for especially for like the most famous probably thing out of this movie which people still know shoplifter no i was actually mm-hmm. gonna say uh the rex manning day uh oh, where course. where mark comes down Not the stairs rex manning day mm-hmm. yeah and like th- those for me were just like what's going on here why are we doing this now why aren't you talking to your friends instead of to me it's weird please stop now do you think so I'm going to bring two questions to kind of pose to that. So one, there is a tradition of breaking of the fourth wall in like teen movie things. And so the, the one that comes to mind first and foremost for me is Ferris Bueller. Yep. And again, we, we sort of talked about this movie kind of being in that weird trough between, uh, John Hughes movies mm-hmm. and and the the sort of like the gross out comedies and and the um, remakes of of uh, My Fair Ladies and Twelfth Nights and things like that, but with teenagers that that come in the late nineties. Um, so, one is that a, a deliberate kind of nod to that sort of of conceit in a teen movie and second is it that um breaking that fourth wall brings us into the store and it's okay to be in the store you're safe in the store the store is your safe place and so in doing that you're kind of drawn into their world a little bit more that I think is what they would say in a court of law. You're leading the witness. Uh, I think, sure, maybe, but that was not my experience. I think in the the Ferris Bueller example, it's very clear what type of movie that they were doing. In this, it was less clear when I watched it. Going back and watching it multiple times, I can totally see being able to kind of see that after the fact. But it wasn't obvious to me that that's the movie it w- wanted to be. And I think Chris hinted at this early on, like the um, that there probably were a lot of things going on between studio and different edits and cuts and this, where maybe some of that was lost. And and I'm really interested. It would be so fun to watch, um, like the director, writers, everyone talking about the decisions that were made and how they were made. Because I'm sure you're right. Like there's probably a version that was like that, that was kind of like 
ahead of the fact thinking around all these things. But to me, watching it, I didn't feel like it was deliberate. It felt more like random. Everything felt random with some amazing moments and other ones being, eh, yeah. but, you know, like I, I would really love to hear the, the story yeah, behind I'm, it. I'm, I'm right there with you, Michael. So I found, I found when it was multiple characters breaking the fourth wall, um, so the, the, to use the, the, uh, Ferris Bueller example, like that's the moment that you connect to that, like, this is the driving character and this is the insight into what he's thinking and doing wants to achieve and that kind of thing. Whereas I found when multiple characters who I didn't have any connection with, um, were doing it, I didn't know who I was supposed to be connected to. Uh, and it made me feel more disconnected and like an outsider than it did bringing me into the conversation with them. But I think that partly goes back to Michael's point is these edits. And so, um, the, the studio was involving itself, not only in the edits, but even in the rewrites going on, on the set. Uh, and in the reshoots. Yeah. And in the re well. exactly. It like threw out like, um, and so there was a number of things going on. So w one was, um, that they were trying to drive more musical scenes and more music into the movie as it was being, uh, shot and rewritten and reshot. Uh, so there's a number of scenes, like there's one scene where they actually have everybody dancing in the store. Like there's this weird dance scene where all the staff is dancing with customers and like, it's the only one though. So it's not like a full commitment to a musical, but it was just like a what? And so there's actually a few members of the cast who just decided to disappear every time they knew one of those scenes was coming, which is why some of the characters aren't in it as much. So um, like Coyote Shivers and a few of the others would just disappear. Because they didn't want to be part of this like shilling out to like sell more records that kind of thing. Total sense. Uh, there's Especially a, for someone like Coyote Shivers, who's a music producer himself right. and produced, you know, are arguably one of the most sort of like iconic uh, songs in Canadian television, which is the theme song to Kids in the Hall, Shadowy Men, Shadowly Planet. Yep. Um, yeah. And so there's there's a few other things here, too, which happen. So one in order to uh, trim it down, there's a few story inconsistencies that pop up. So like uh, you'll see um, um, Liv Tyler's character giving a red bra back to Gina. Um, and it's like, well, why is she taking her bra off at a restaurant? And so like there's a number of these story inconsistencies because earlier on, Renee Zellweger, Gina, uh, had given her a red bra to help seduce Rex Manning. But in the edits, you wind up not ever seeing that happen. So Liv Tyler's just taking off her bra and giving it to Renee Zellweger. And you're like, I don't understand what just happened. Why are you doing this? Oh, that's funny because like, I, I always felt that that actually came across um, because she's, she's sort of the way that she is indicating the bra and like giving it back. It's like, oh, obviously Gina was the one who gave you this because you're talking about like, I don't throw myself at men, you know, and, and like, let's, let's, you know, a uh, shout out to the costumer, like Liv Tyler is like wearing the red bra and like granny panties when she's seducing Rex Manning. It's like, it's not like a, it's not a, 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 an ensemble. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I, and I certainly, I mean, I, I kind of filled in those gaps. I mean, some of the other stuff that gets edited, I, I think there's stuff where you fill in the gaps or it was edited down for time, which you certainly get a sense of, and, and you can kind of make some of those leaps. Um, some of it was to get the rating down. So when Liv Tyler, um, you know, tries to seduce um, uh, Rex Manning and, 
uh, he he like unzips his pants and then she's like, oh, and like gets out of there. It's because in the original shot, he had like unzipped and then being like, well, I hope you like ranch dressing and like pours it on himself. And she's like, OK, that's, that's disgusting. Exactly. Yeah. But that's, that's why she disgusting. has such a visceral reaction is like, I got to get out of here as opposed to just like, ew, I don't want this guy. Um, and so there's, there's a few of those like, I don't get it. What? Why? This is just a really jagged turn for this character. And a lot of those came out of... Um, you know, these kind of like reshoots, re-edits, re- rewrites, um, you know, whatever, all these all these twists that went in for the studio trying to get what they wanted. The ones that I found personally most entertaining were just scenes where you could tell the actors didn't know what music was going to be put in at various <laughs> points. So like points where they're like they put a song on, they're like, I love this one. And you're like, you, you're like, nobody's singing along people. You can just tell. So there are a number of those songs that got added to the um, soundtrack for the movie were being added in later. And they're just like, I don't know, we're going to put something on here. So just play some music and then run around and like dance because it hadn't been settled but, yet. But it's funny you mentioned that because the I actually think that the, the music selection was really good throughout, except for the one that they clearly then all knew about which was the uh the the rooftop song at the very end which i think was incredibly weak and the performance was just like this is what people are cheering about like no one would th- this is not like youtube uh, streets with no name uh people kind of gathering going like wow this is the best ever they're doing like some very generic rock song right at the end um you know i'm doing quotation marks Renee Zellweger singing and she's not it's just like the worst and people are like yeah it's amazing ah the store forever so the one that was actually planned I think was the weakest compared to everything else that, that should up in the movie but it is pop punk at a time when pop punk is just exploding this is 1995 so you know Green Day uh had had just kind of blown up with Dookie what like a year earlier in fact like uh billy joe armstrong was supposed to play the part of burko that coyote shivers ended up uh playing but they they couldn't get him because his his tour schedule um ended up and conflicting with the shoot dates so you know you it's that sort of like it's that kind of artifact of that time as well it's like this was what was kind of top of the pops at that time I, I get what they were shooting for. I'm saying you give it way too much credit in your description because that's not what it sounds like. It's sort of like saying, oh, yeah, all of these characters, yeah, they were, they were meant to be. Yeah, but that's not what comes through. So, yeah, I, I will say the, uh, um, I think the soundtrack is one of the carrying features of this movie, right? There's a lot of music that, to Evan's point, is like peak 90s um uh, you know, music, songs, artists that that are that are here. Um, and maybe what we should do is take a quick break. And on the other side, we can talk about the sound and the soundtrack in this music uh, movie, because I think uh, that's probably the biggest feature that uh, for a lot of people they're going to remember. So let's take a quick break and talk about that when we come back. And 
and we are back. So we're going to talk about the music and sound in this movie. So um, I did a quick count uh, at the end credits uh, for the the remix version of this movie, which I think is the one that's streaming on uh, Prime and other places. There were 50 songs uh, in this movie. Basically, the end credits have almost as much time spent uh, just listing all the songs that were played in this movie as all the other people who took part in its production. It's like four and a half minutes of credits. And I think almost as much time is spent in there uh, on the song. So um, for, for, for both of you, are there a lot of songs that are calling back to you from this soundtrack where you're like, Ooh, yeah, that's a, that's a doozy. Love that one. That's, those are some good ones. Or like, do you think um, it's meant to evoke that like peak nineties music or is this like a few heavy hitters that stand out to you and you know, maybe the rest doesn't hold up. Like I'm curious for each of you. I think that the, I think that there's that there is definitely a wash of uh, 90s-ness. You know, um, there are some heavy hitters, Chin Blossoms, Till I Hear From You. Yeah. Uh, ACDC. You know, the cran- yeah, the Cranberries, ACDC. Um, you know, I, the uh, cover of uh, Money is, you know, a really, uh, yeah. Uh, a video killed the radio star, which, you know, a big, nod to MTV as well there. Um, the, the one that I, like, I genuinely love one of the songs, uh, on this, this soundtrack that I didn't know before I saw the movie and that's the martinis, um, doing free, which is the song that, um, Deb shaves her head to. And, uh, that is a side project of, um, the one of the Pixies guitar players and his wife, um, who, who's the vocalist on it. And, um, like that, that again is, is one of those sort of like songs that has the right amount of fuzz and everything that I just, I, I like curling up in that song. I couldn't agree more about the, like, sure. There's some things that they probably added in very cleverly people would recognize, but I was surprised at how many of these ones are obscure choices. Mm. So you just mentioned uh, you just mentioned uh, money. Flying Lizards is not a famous band outside of of UK, and even they're not very much. So their version of that is really obscure. Um, Matt Johnson with his uh, band uh, the the doing you know the uh, this is the the day. This is not like a super common band or track that would have been played. So all bunch of these ones, I was like, hey, this someone really put a lot of effort into to picking these songs. And that part really added credibility to it, which is why I'm giving them such a hard time about the the one live appearance song where I just went, this is not that. You did all this effort and then you did a thing that was just like for me personally, I thought this this is probably the weakest music yeah, in the entire and, thing. And I think for me, I mean, I, I, this wasn't the m- music I was listening to in the 90s, which I find fascinating because a few of these, obviously, I remember, uh, like to your point, like Cranberries, Gin Blossoms, ACDC, like there's songs where you're like, yes, of course, I know this song. It was so big and so popular. So if, like for me, I think um, there's a few touchstone moments in the movie, like hanging out in the back of the shop where they're rocking out to ACDC, where I'm like, that's a genuinely fun scene. Where they're like, all right, dancing and singing along, like pretending to do the stage show in the back with like, you know, fake microphones. I'm like, okay, that's awesome. I wish there was a little less overall and a little bit more concentration into like those truly 
um, you know, highly memory. And maybe maybe they were taking a gamble on which songs were going to hit and be popular. I don't know. But like just a little bit more of that, like streamlining it down, because, again, there's 50 songs. Uh, and when they released the uh, soundtrack for this, there's only uh, 14 or 15 on there. Yeah, they're 12 or yeah, they're 12 or 14. I, I remember being really disappointed that there weren't uh, certain songs on it when I got the soundtrack. Um, yeah. That, which was uh, successful. That, it was a successful yeah, soundtrack, which was, and it, so that actually ties into to two things that that I'm kind of curious on, on your opinions of, or that I'm sort of going to throw it out there because it just comes to mind. So, Michael, you know, when you're saying that that you know there there's such great heavy hitting songs in this, and then uh, you know the the one song that is done live that it's kind of building up towards just does not live up to the hype uh, to tie all of that back is that uh so word on the street is is that empire records is going to be made into a broadway musical and uh i, I can already see chris just like oh no th- this is a, deeply unhappy this is a smile this. of joy that i have on my face because um out of all the sadness and and stress and you know all the stuff that came out of covid i will say one of the rays of sunshine for me was that the empire records musical uh that was supposed to hit broadway uh got canned so oh. i was oh, it's that like saddens me so the much. silver lining on covid for me is uh, oh because <laughs> i i feel like they could have i feel like they could have uh, uh made up for so many so many things gender swapping roles giving giving some diversity <laughs> giving some uh, lgbtq plus representation yeah. uh really just like having a great soundtrack having a everything. i could not i could not be i could not be more with evan on this to say like the core of this movie is about finding like your tribe it's about these people who are such outcasts they don't really fit in anywhere else yet they have this one thing that ties them together so like there's a core there about and and you hear it in little things about like you know you saw me you saw what I was really trying to do and you you recognized it and you supported it and I wanted to go this direction they're they're like all there for each other the the core of this movie I think uh, would be amazing to watch it's just this movie I think is not quite that but you know the idea of someone doing it. Uh, and redo it and kind of like getting that right. I, I would be all for that. It's just this particular one. I don't think is that, but the, the core of it. Again, is, this is, is what there. I found so maddening about it is I found like the, the central thing, you know, the, the heart of this movie is something that I'm like, I found very compelling and it was just everything that went on around it that I found maddening. So you're right. Maybe, maybe with a redo, you know, the stage show or, or a reboot or, you know, whatever of this might, might bring it to fruition for me. But I mean, I think for the folks who love this movie, I don't think they need that. I think there's a lot of people who already love the movie just the way it is. And that's great. Like I, I can certainly get why some people would fall in love with these characters and the music and the era. And like Evan said, the vibe of this movie. Absolutely. And I'm like, I don't know that you need to toy with that. Like now, but I, I, I'm amazed though that neither of you have brought up this this one thing, and I really want to see how this fits in with uh, Evan's um, mental narrative about the importance uh, of this movie. Gore, a hundred percent. Please explain. Of course, the makers yeah. of the 100% famous song gore. "Meat Sandwich." 
<laughs> that is, it's one of my all-time favorite scenes in the in the whole thing. Which again, though, and, it's know, a confusing. Pretty good. Too bad you have to die. And then he's eaten on stage. <laughs> I mean, credit to Guar, they let him actually perform on stage with him. Uh, but yeah. it is one of those scenes which, again, is very confusing. Um, I mean, you get that it's supposed to be a pot brownie, and he's tripping and watching himself on the TV. But again, that's one of those things that has those hard edits thrown in where you're like, right, it just has a lot of sugar. It doesn't have pot in it. No, we can't talk about pot. Well, I mean, he says, you know what it means? Extra sugar. So I, he's being very, you know, not totally get it. Yeah. I, I wrote down in the, the notes for this. I said that his performance is either the worst ever or genius. And in that moment, I literally could not decide where which where one. Ethan Embry is watching the TV, and I love you, Eddie. All of his performances throughout, like he's either the best actor doing the best performance or the worst. Why not but, both? And maybe maybe the point about this, right? Maybe the point about this movie is that to say, you know, we, we've always talked about that average performances these bland things they speak to no one and they they do nothing someone who's like all out there and going all for it yeah you're gonna have a lot of people who say well this is not for me but the people who do like it well that that's like a that is precisely what i want so like there's something about that these extreme performances so do you feel that might be one of the reasons why this movie has achieved cult status michael Totally. Because if you look at all these, and, and you mentioned earlier around like, um, I was going to say Rocky Road Horror Show, but you, but you know what I mean? <laughs> Rocky it's like Road all these, Horror Show. That's, yeah. I, I don't know what that, that is, but let's put the, it on our list too. <laughs> that, that is the, 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 the Broadway uh, revival. The ice cream flavor. Coming next spring. Yeah. But, but the idea there where it's like, you know, these things are so cheesy, so campy, so out there, but that is precisely why some people love it because they, they actually have a, a statement. They make a statement. They have an identity. Like there's something unique. It's not just going the, the safe way. So I think that's precisely why uh, cult classics become cult classics in the first place. Yeah. Now, I wonder if the, it, it, I, I think that's, I, I agree with you hundred percent, Michael. And I also wonder if, Perhaps that one of the reasons why Empire Records failed when it did is because it is so earnest. It's not a cynical movie. Like you said, you know, it's 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 about finding your tribe and camaraderie and they they kind of all band together. Um, and it came out kind of a bit of a mid 90s is a bit of a cynical time. Um you know, you've you've got those Gen Xers who are, uh, you know, Reality Bites was was their jam, and that you know, if this movie was supposed to grab any of that, it it fails miserably. But there's you know a group of kids who are a bit younger than them who it kind of really strikes a chord for, and maybe that earnestness. Well, it massively hindered it when it when it first came out is one of the things that's made it so endearing and enduring. Yeah, I think I think that's entirely possible. And again, you know, I think I think, um, you know, I think one of the things that that can be here is just your willingness to uh, fill in the blanks to some degree. Right. And I think I think I found those points where there was those um, 
weird zigs and zags, you know, was maybe just because that wasn't the, the, the thing that I was looking for, the thing I, I felt immediately connected to. I think if, if there's enough of those things, then it's, it's a fun enough movie. I mean, for me, this is a little bit one of those, like, if I was sitting down with people to watch this as a drinking game, this could be a lot of fun. This doesn't necessarily evoke nostalgia or that that like warm fuzzy blanket that you talk about. But like, I think there's enough fun stuff in here for the the right audience. And, and then it's really just more about like, does this land in your kind of like bullseye or whatever on 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 your your target here, right? And I think for some people it did. The, the thing I was reading about this was actually that before they they put this into that that limited release, they'd done a few. Um, you know, focus group screenings of this Mm -hmm. and with groups of teenagers, it was immensely successful. Like people were loving it with the folks, the teenagers when they played it for like, you know, adults who didn't get it, you know, damn the man, like they didn't. Right. So I definitely think there's uh, a, a sense of time and place and community that, that definitely gets called out for the right group of folks. Yeah. And, and particularly at the time was like, how the heck do you market this thing? So we we talked the other week around uh, in Bruges and the number of different posters for that thing, which is just, it was brutal to see, like they're trying to say, oh, this is kind of like a cute poster. It's a funny one. It's this, that. How the heck do you market a thing like this? And and just look at the, the poster that they did for it. It's like, you look at it and go, okay, so they put Liv Tyler at the center. So it's like, okay, so that's the movie this is? Like... They, they, it's just, it, it would be impossible. They're not making themselves, doing themselves any favors whatsoever in terms of that, because the traditional marketing machine would have looked at this and said, I have no idea what this thing is, but let's try to make a cute poster and sell the heck out of it. So one of the things that I definitely want to talk about before we we go, um, I, I noticed a number of things which just made me laugh. And again, it's kind of that tie in for me of if, if I was going to go back and watch this again, it would be as probably a drinking game with people. Um, and for me, the number of shot inconsistencies in this movie hmm. made me laugh. So it was one of those things which I was like, I don't think they mean to be doing this, but I find this fun and entertaining. Um, So throughout, there's a number of things where it's like, um, as an example, one of my favorites, which happens right in the beginning of the movie when Lucas goes to the casino, uh, the, the, uh, he's playing craps, the, the guy pushes the dice over to him. He picks them up, talks to the people around them. And like 10 seconds later, there's a scene of the casino worker pushing the dice back over to him again. And then he never picks them up. It's just like these dice get pushed over on the table again. And I laughed out loud. And I'm like, I don't think I'm supposed to be laughing at this, but this is crazy. Were there any shot inconsistencies in this movie that you guys noticed that stood out anyway? I'll, I'll say for this one, none that mattered. There, there was nothing about that that mattered to me. Like there was more around, I, I thought maybe acting inconsistencies and tone. But to be honest, like I, I would have watched a movie like if you've seen uh, Princess Bride and the, the weirdness going on with things like shadows changing direction in the, the fencing scene. This uh, and didn't that was the least right. of my concern. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I mean, in in. I I totally take your point, Chris. Um, to me, it's it's part of the patchwork that makes me love this film even more. And it's the the uh, 
you know, the things that really stick out for me, uh, you know, if, if we were doing a drinking game is like whenever the characters, uh, you, you know, you get that sort of cutaway shot of the characters doing something really strange on their own, yeah. like Mark being outside and then making out with the uh, poster of Gloria Estefan. Yeah. Gluing the quarters to like, the rug. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like, it's that kind of stuff, the, those very strange little things here and there that uh, that just make me kind of beam in delight. And I, I, I guess, you know, it seems that, that you know, I mean, I, I, I grant you that that this is a messy movie, but I will also say that maybe that is just reflective of the messiness of adolescence and that's why it hits so hard i I think this is like a a movie rorschach test to gauge your willingness to like just engage with the movie the way it is and still find we we talked in the in bruges episode about whether we were ken's or ray's Right. And like, do you just enjoy the thing because you're there and you're enjoying it? We agreed. Evan was the the traveler who's just happy to be there and there isn't enough time to see it all. And Michael was more on the like. And I think in this case, I'm definitely more on the Ray end of things here where it's just like, I'm not happy to be here. I'm not enjoying this. Why do I have to stay here for so long? Can we please get out of here? Whereas Evan is on the hey, I'm happy to fill it in. Enjoy my time here. It's great. I love it. I also think like the the big thing about all of this is sure we could focus on movies that would be you know appealing to the most number of people the most amount of time but it's also really awesome to focus in on something that like swings for the fences and for some people that will be exactly, exactly. what they're looking for and other people it's not going to be their thing and I think we need to do that too because like that if something is meaningful to you like that share it with the world like and, and let's look at what is that thing that really appealed to you like I, I so from that perspective I'm really glad I watched it and and I mean it genuinely mean it and that is consistent with me also telling you I did not enjoy it when I watched it and both of those statements are true at the same time. You know, Michael, I I really appreciate you bringing uh, bringing the positivity, Chris. I really appreciate you putting in the work. And you know, I guess the only thing left to ask: uh, Will either of you two be celebrating Rex Manning Day with me uh, this year, April eighth? It's right around the corner for when we're recording this, too. I mean, if you don't tell me that we're celebrating Rex Manning Day and just tell me that we're going out on April 8th. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, if you're good. Well, actually, no correction. Let's actually make it expressly Rex Manning Day. But you have to wear the Rex Manning outfit and then I'm in for it. All right. And for me, for me, sure. As long as you don't do like a weird salad dressing thing. (laughs) Nobody wants that. Least of all, live time. And I think maybe that's a good place to call it uh, with dreams of Evan and his purple ruffled velour outfit uh, dancing through our heads. Uh, let's call it here. And this was Empire Records. Nice. I'm excited to listen to this one. So that's what we thought about Empire Records. Bit of a mixed 
the mixed bag tonight. Uh, and we'd love to know what your thoughts were. Uh, you can always find us on Twitter at how did you miss this? That's HDYMT underscore pod. And while you're there, take a look at some of the movies we're planning on watching soon and let us know if you've got any questions, thoughts, or other ideas that you want us to cover when we talk about the movie. If you enjoy what we're doing here, do us a favor, take a second to rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you happen to be listening. And we'll be back with you next week when we're going to be talking about the Alfred Hitchcock classic, Vertigo, and whether it's actually an all-time classic or whether it's a movie that should have stayed missed. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you then. Thank you.